Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship. I'm Latifa Farah, Associate Creative Producer at Venture for Canada and the producer of a new wave of entrepreneurship. The focus of this podcast is to hear from changemakers and Canadian entrepreneurs to learn about how they've developed their entrepreneur mindset and skills. In Season 5, we'll be chatting with CEOs, founders, and successful business leaders about their career journeys. We're excited to dive into these conversations about how to foster your entrepreneurial mindset and drive. Alison Lote is the Managing Director of Sustainable Investing and Innovation at OP Trust, a Canadian public pension plan. She leads OP Trust's Responsible Investment Program, its Total Fund Climate Change Strategy, and a new portfolio investing at the intersection of sustainability and innovation with a focus on climate change. She has a deep commitment to public service. Allison co-founded the Samara Center for Democracy and was a senior fellow and instructor at the University of Toronto and the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto. Allison, it is a pleasure to chat with you. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I've been really looking forward to this. Uh, I have been as well. And I really enjoyed reading your book uh, over the last uh, month or so called Tragedy in the Commons, which I highly recommend our listeners uh, check out. Uh, And for context, uh, the book is a kind of compiles the learnings from uh, Alison and her colleagues interviewing approximately 100 former Canadian parliamentarians and learning about their experiences uh, in the inner workings of of Canadian uh, democracy. So Alison, can you tell us a little bit about what were some of the the key learnings uh, that you gained uh, from writing this book? Well, I found this book came out in 2014, so it's been a long time since I've sort of talked in depthly about it. But one of the um, things to me that was most interesting when you interview people about such an important time in your life, like being a member of parliament, which is obviously a hugely significant role for anyone who's filled it, is that the parts of their recollections that were at least to me were the most interesting were not what I thought they would say. So for example, we started out all of the interviews with just what we thought was a warm-up question. You know, how'd you get into this in the first place? And that was just kind of, I guess, where surprise number one came. So I don't know what I thought people would say, but they all said a version of this. Oh my, I never thought I would be a politician. I never wanted to run for office. You know, I was here over here doing my thing and then so-and-so knocked on my door and asked me to run. And I said, no, and then they came back and they came back. So there's versions of this sort of hugely reluctant individual that kind of got dragged kicking and screaming into the political arena. And so on one hand, you know, these are people's truths and this is their memory or how they choose to remember their memory. Um, But what I felt was actually quite sad about that, um, particularly given, you know, the importance of the role of a parliamentarian in our democracy is that only one of them said a version of, I thought that politics was a really incredible way to make a contribution to my country. And I had my eyes open for an opportunity. And when it came, I grabbed it. And that shouldn't feel like a super controversial thing to say, but the fact that so few of them recalled their entry to politics that way, I thought was quite sad. Um, And as we reflect in the book, as you know, what uh, we sort of provoked out of that is that if you as the sort of holder of these, you know, keys to the office aren't, um, you know, standing up and actually telling a different story about the career that you're in, you know, can you really blame a young person for not wanting to vote or for not seeing politics as a valuable way to contribute? Um, so one of the sort of, again, surprises to me was just how reluctant they were to sort of own the narrative of the profession they chose. And now I know why, because they 
are trying to identify with the public who, you know, we don't like politicians. Um, but that's not going to change if MPs themselves don't stand up and articulate the purpose behind the roles that they fill in a more compelling way. In your book, you go into detail about some of the challenges with Canadian political parties and how they aren't uh, as uh, inclusive as, as they could be or, or as representative. Uh, what do you think, uh, what is one uh, principal change that you think Canadian political parties uh, should make to their um, uh, structures? So, I mean, I'd say there's at least probably two big things I would would recommend. One is a broad one, which is transparency, greater transparency, shine some sun on this situation. Um, political parties have a lot of important functions. They choose who runs for office, and that's often done very opaquely in some writings, the nomination is actually the election. If you're a conservative in Alberta, in most ridings in Alberta, typically if you win the, the nomination, you're going to win the general election. So there should be a little transparency in that process. Um, the, a number of other functions, but another one I'll just mention, this leads to my second suggestion, is, is their policy role. Um, they are charged with determining the policy uh, and setting the direction, the policy direction for the country. Um, this is an area that's hugely under-resourced. Now, our political parties are very publicly subsidized. And again, back to there should be more transparency in exchange for that public subsidy. Um, but very few of them invest heavily in real public policy infrastructure or thinking. Um, there's a, you know, potentially a model we could look at out of Germany where they do establish policy foundations. And this is a little bit with what we see at the Broadbed Institute and the Manning Center where they try to establish some separate infrastructure to really drive some policy thinking. Um, but that infrastructure here in Canada is very nascent and very underdeveloped. So I think there's a huge opportunity there as well. Another area that you discuss a lot uh, within the book uh, is uh, the fact that a, lo a lot of members of parliament kind of uh, show up and they don't really necessarily know how to, to do their jobs. Like they're just kind of elected member of parliament. They come from diverse kind of career paths. Many of them have had no previous kind of experience in, in politics. And then all of a sudden, uh, they're an MP and they have 100 hour weeks and all of these different kind of things uh, going on. Uh, well, what uh, would you kind of suggest uh, sh should be done to kind of ease people's transition from being a kind of a citizen to uh, becoming a member of parliament in terms of kind of a formal uh, orientation? One is about the work that the individual running has to do to think hard about why they're running and what they want to do there while they're there. And then I'll talk about orientation in a minute. One of the things that another surprise was when we asked what we thought was kind of a warm up question, you know, what did you do as an MP or what was the role of the MP? We got about as many answers as we had MPs we interviewed. And you sort of think about that, like imagine going into a workplace where people who hold, you know, basically the same job have drastically different interpretations of what that job is and what they're meant to do. So um, in one, one example was, you know, we had one person talk at length about how their role was really to set policy for the country. And, you know, the, that was their primary purpose. And yeah, they represented a riding and they brought that perspective forward, but that was their job. And then you had other people say, well, all that highfalutin Ottawa stuff, waste of time. I'm here to help, you know, my people in my riding, you know, access services. Those are really different jobs, but they have the same job. So I don't know what's their job. Maybe it's both. I don't know. Um, but very few actually said, articulated what the job of the MP was, which is to hold the government to account. So I thought that was also very, very interesting. <laughs> At least that's what traditionally we would define the role of the MP in the Westminster system. Um, so that goes to orientation. Um, 
when we did initially write a report, um, I think it was called, you know, what am I here to do or something It was about, <laughs> I forgot to check, double check the title, but it was really about, um, I think it was a job with no description or something we called it. Um, and we pointed out that there was no orientation, um, but the right orientation depends on what the job is, right? So if your job is to be a service professional, you know, a, a souped up customer service representative and you're riding for the government of Canada, that's a really different training than if your job is to be a policymaker, um, just to give two. Uh, examples. And then I, you know, I also think you need to know the rules of, of how Parliament works, how agendas are set, what committees, I mean, there's a whole bunch of technical information on how that organization runs that you should be familiar with. There's also a really important communications role, I think, elected officials play. Um, so those are just a handful of, you know, the challenges and what would a perfect orientation system look like. Um, the reality is, I think the political orientation is one thing, what parliament would offer would be another. And then I also think there is a role for call it independent executive education that is at a little bit more of a sort of, you know, strategic and content based level than they might get from some of the other places. Right now it's spotty, but um, I think, you know, one of the little legacies of Samara was that I think there has been a bit more attention on the need to provide uh, MPs with the tools to do their jobs well, if we expect them to excel. I think that the work that you did at, at Samara and the Samara continues to do is something that is so important because democracy, I mean, we have faced huge problems as, as a society and there's probably few things that are a better public investment or better just investment in general as a society as of investing our democratic, uh, investing in enhancing our democratic infrastructure. Because the more that uh, our democracy is strengthened, the more that we have an ability to tackle all of these different problems, be it like climate change, income inequality, economic uh, growth. And uh, you know, when you look at uh, Canadians' trust in public institutions, there's been this steady kind of fall uh, in terms of uh, trust in, in, in public institutions and, and democracy, not just in Canada, but, but around the world. So I think that your work, it was very interesting from a game perspective, but also uh, globally, when you look at the rise of uh, the, the decline of democracy in a lot of areas of the world, uh, your uh, work is, is absolutely critical. So kind of shifting a little bit to your career, you left a, a prestigious job at McKinsey and company to, to launch uh, Canada. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what motivated you to, to go launch a charity and, and leave this, this very prestigious sought after job at, at, at McKinsey? Uh, well, McKinsey's, I, I think, is a uh, is a part of the story in a funny way. So when I was uh, started at McKinsey right out of university, uh, about a year in, I, I sort of had the itch to, you know, engage in, you know, policy and issues facing the country. And I um, started working with five other friends to set up an organization which was called Canada 25. Um, and our goal there was to find a meaningful and productive way for young people young Canadians around the world to get involved in public policy. Um, we believe there were a lot that cared, but they lacked a meaningful outlet to, uh, to get engaged. Back to my comment about political parties earlier, that could be one potential opportunity for them. Um, so I started this off the side of my desk while I was at McKinsey and it really grew. And we had some incredible people involved and McKinsey actually gave me a paid leave to set that organization up and run it out of the McKinsey office for ultimately several years. So that was kind of Samara 1.0 in a way, that organization. And, you know, the, some of the alumni include, you know, the person who developed the Millennium Development Goals, which led to the Sustainable Development Goals at the UN, um, the now <laughs> former mayors of Calgary and Edmonton, just to name a couple. I mean, there were some superb people that have gone on to great acclaim, and, and there are many more. Um, so that was a really um, inspiring time for me where I saw that trying to come creatively at public issues in Canada actually can make a big difference. So I... Um, 
knew that was kind of what I always wanted to de dedicate my career to try to do as best I can. So I ended up um, going to, to Samara because I had opportunity to meet Michael McMillan with whom I co-founded the organization. Uh, while I was at Canada 25, I ran, I tried my darndest to raise some money to keep that organization afloat. I mean, I essentially worked for free for years for that organization. Um, and McKinsey, as I said, provided the office space with no expectation of favor, um, which is why I'm very, very loyal alumni of that firm to this day. Um, so, uh, very few see a lot of CEOs would get up and talk about youth engagement and stuff like this or whatever. And then, you know, I'd try to engage them and, you know, it never went anywhere. So when I met Michael, who at that time was, had, uh, was, was just um, sort of winding up first phase of a very successful career in Canadian media. Um, and he was trying to think about what he could do um, sort of to light a bit of a fire under the country. And it was pretty general. And he and I spent a fair amount of time kind of talking, getting to know each other. Um, and then he said, listen, let's just, let's get something going. And so for me, it was an opportunity to, you know, be able to build something that I felt would make a meaningful contribution to the country with a little more resourcing than we had at Canada 25. Um, and I just felt it was an, uh, an opportunity I couldn't turn down. So that was really the reason. And because it was, it's about, you know, was about my heart where I felt I could make a meaningful uh, contribution. And I, you know, I've always really enjoyed building things. I've enjoyed working on really tough problems. And it was a privilege to get to do that. By the, that is really awesome that McKinsey uh, let you basically work on something on the side like that for for years and while paying paying you and, and letting you work at the office. It's a pretty remarkable story. Uh, so kind of this is a question that's more specific to like fundraising in, in the in the charitable sector and, and kind of philanthropy in Canada. Do you think that that um, th there is like a lack of like philanthropic kind of capital uh, in this country uh, and that uh, uh, and that the, the barriers to kind of like launching new charities or, or new kind of uh, nonprofit initiatives are, uh, are, are kind of too significant? Uh, on the first, the answer is yes. Um, on the second, it's easy to start something. It's hard to grow it and build it. So, I mean, so it's very easy to start something. You set up a website and it's easier than ever to start something then. I mean, it certainly was in Canada 25 days. I mean, it was, we had a primitive website. There was no Facebook. I wrote letters to get people involved. Um, funny little story, by the way, I wrote to the Rhodes Trust because I was like, where are places where they have like lots of, you know, smart Canadians living all over the place. So, and they, they supported it. And I had like 25 Rhodes Scholars apply and we only had 20 spots. And I'm like, I can't, <laughs> I can't have them all be Rhodes Scholars, but I also can't turn down Rhodes Scholars. Like, why is this happening? Um, in any case, um, so yeah, I think, I think there is a dearth of, I'll call it kind of creative philanthropic money in Canada. Um, and I, I do think, you know, for all the generosity in our, our companies and governments, I mean, those are often tied to very clear agendas. So we definitely don't have a lot of, you know, creative entrepreneurial public service capital, for lack of a better word. Um, and I think that's that's a huge disappointment. If we have a listener uh, who, let's say, has uh, similar uh, diverse cross-sector experiences and is kind of looking uh, for their next thing and looking how to position themselves in the job market, what advice would you give this person? I feel that it's been privileged that I've been able to do so many interesting and different things in different sectors. Like I've loved it. You can connect dots that you never thought you could. You got you meet and get to work with so many incredible people that come at the world in such different ways. So I would never sort of discourage anyone from taking you know a slightly less direct path uh, of their career. I think it's it's extraordinary. 
In a small market like Canada, though, um, it's definitely challenging. Um, when I was living in Boston for a number of years, as you mentioned, and, and trying to re-enter the Canadian market um, was a lot harder than I expected. And uh, a friend once said to me, you know, when things are hard, that's when you're really learning. And I, I drew on that wisdom many times. But I think, you know, for me, um, again, you can only do what you can control, you know, so generally my conversations would say, well, we want somebody with 15 to 20 years of progressively senior experience doing X, sales, marketing, whatever the heck it was, investing, you know, communications. So it was, the, it's a very siloed career expectation. Um, so that was good for me to see. Um, but I had to work hard on, okay, well, what have I have, what have I done for 15 to 20 years progressively, right? <laughs> I've built organizations, I've led teams, like I really had to do that hard work. I still had to struggle against well, you don't have enough content expertise in one thing. So I'm not providing good advice, because I'm just relaying my story. Um, and so it was about taking the time to find the organization that was actively looking to hire people with different backgrounds. By the way, I think that that challenge can also exist in the charitable sector. I found different employees of Venture for Canada when we've been doing hiring and things, there's been this uh, often uh, inclination by some people to be like, oh, we only hire only hire people with charitable sector experience, people from all other sectors, like their experience doesn't. So it's interesting. I, I do think that there can be a tendency to sort of silo and say like, oh, there's not, uh, they worked at this big bank, therefore they cannot work in the charity sector or like they worked at a startup, their experience doesn't kind of qualify. Uh, and I, so for all, for, I'd say employers of all sector, like look at the person just in general and their potential don't necessarily look at what narrow, uh, industry that, that they've been in. Uh, and, uh, I, I think it's great points that, that you shared, uh, Allison, uh, what's like one kind of tangible piece of advice that you have for, uh, for people who maybe recently their confidence was, was shaken by something and they're looking to, to rebuild it. I, I mean, this is an easy thing to say and harder to do, but you've got to sort of lean on a friend. I had a, an important intervention happen to me when I was having lunch with a friend and I was just like, I'm just sort of struggling to figure out kind of where the next move for me is. Like, and I wasn't like devastated or anything, but just because I had a job in Boston and I, which I enjoyed. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't unemployed. I was so, um, and she said to me, I want you to come over when you've got a few hours because we got to work on some stuff. And she really helped me think hard again this comes back to like who am I and how do I want to project myself in the world and she actually tangibly walked through how to approach questions like tell me about yourself you know tell me about your background oftentimes people will kind of blab and she's like you have to be very intentional you know what they're looking for so you start out with just a little story about how you grew up you know I like I grew up my parents were teachers at a boarding school I grew up in a boarding school so I kind of learned that you know you give your all to your community and you do what needs to be done that's, that's my, that's my truth. That's, that's true. That was my upbringing. She had her story and what that, you know, a version like that gives paints a picture right away. It allows you to connect with somebody and that tells you a lot about yourself. And then you kind of build from there. So she really, and I mean, I was, I'd mostly created my own job. So I'd never really had to go through a proper interview process before that was another problem. Um, so she really helped me work that through, you know, how are you really intentional and strategic about telling your story? And then, you know, what are the main things, you know, they're looking for and build that in. So if it's, I'm going to ask a, a more controversial question that is related to, to your field, but do you think that Canadian uh, pension plans should divest from natural resource, from 
like oil sands or uh, certain, uh, you know, significantly carbon emitting uh, projects uh, within the country? I, I do not. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> um, there's a bunch of different reasons. My own view on this is that the entire global economy needs to transition from one that is based on fossil fuels and high emitting um, energy sources to one that is much more renewable and sustainable. Um, I think that's unequivocal. So I believe that people who see divestment as the best path uh, and I share the same ultimate objectives and there's, but there's divergences on how to get there. Um, one, from an investor perspective, uh, one of the biggest challenges is that for us is we wanna decarbonize our entire portfolios. So if you divest from oil and gas, that certainly can really help you, but that doesn't help you in any of the other industries, which are also very emitting. So if you look at some of the world's largest emitting sectors, they're things like industrials, steel, cement, right? Should we divest from those? Real estate, should we divest from real estate? Transportation, should we divest from transportation? You see where this is going, right? Um, agriculture, should we divest from agriculture? So you find yourself if you sort of say, okay, well, what is my ultimate goal? And then how do I get there? As an investor, I mean, we have to put our money to work for the benefit of our beneficiaries to ensure they have a pension. So that means we have to have something we invest in. So this makes it much more difficult. So in order to, so we have to, I think, think about ourselves in the role that we play in ensuring the transition happens, ideally in as smooth and as least disruptive a way as possible. That includes ensuring pricing predictability, which we already are having a huge challenge with if you live in Europe, right? You'll see, you'll, you see this firsthand, um, you know, and because we have to have a just transition, right? <laughs> um, and we have to ensure that we are not divesting from the industries that are probably best positioned to lead that transition. Now, that doesn't mean every single oil and gas company should be invested in, but it also doesn't mean that they should all be divested from. So that's where it gets a lot more complex. So I think it's really up to investors to have a very clear plan on the role that they play in what I'll call this energy transition, which is really underpinning our entire global economy and nearly every industry in which we invest. And just a pure divestment approach isn't going to get us there as investors. Um, and I'm not saying we, you know, if, as I said, it's not like every single oil and gas company is, is acting in the best uh, spirit of that transition, but there are many that are. And if we make it harder for them to do their jobs, then it's going to be a, a rougher transition for, for all of us and for every industry. So I know that's not the answer people want to hear, but that's uh, unfortunately the reality of the economy that we have today. No, and, and it's a super complicated uh, um, uh, subject. At Venture for Canada, we recently had Mark Pudlasley, who is the uh, Director of Economic Policy. Oh, do you know Mark, uh, Allison? <laughs> he is great. Uh, and he is a, a, a Director at the First Nations Major Projects Coalition. And he spoke to Venture for Canada fellows, and he was very critical of ESG, so environmental and social governance. Uh, and he argues that ESG undermines Indigenous uh, people's uh, interests. Uh, and for context of listeners, uh, there's the United Nations Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, aka UNDRIP. Uh, and UNDRIP uh, has specific uh, uh, rule, or which has been also received royal assent in Parliament. So UNDRIP is coming uh, to Canada, and uh, it uh, uh, requires a free and uh, informed prior consent uh, by Indigenous peoples in terms of uh, development. So there's there's one standard in terms of UNDRIP of Indigenous consultation. And then there's uh, ESG, so environmental and social uh, governance uh, uh, sort of standards, which often, which are not at the same as UNDRIP uh, kind of standards. 
And he basically was arguing that we're going to enter into a situation where there's going to be a big conflict between the UNDRIP standards and ESG uh, standards. And that in particular, a lot of corporations uh, use ESG as a way to, to say, oh, everything's good, but they're not actually getting the consent of, of Indigenous people. So my question to you, Alison, is do you think that there are significant issues with ESG standards uh, um, uh, in that, yes, they might be environmental, they might align with environmental interests, but at the same time, they, there's a challenge because ESG standards aren't often sufficient in terms of Indigenous engagement. So there's a bunch of things there. So um, I'll speak first about ESG standards, and then I'm going to talk about um, about the Indigenous uh, angle. And I, I, I'm fortunate to know Mark, and I know his work, and he's uh, it's it's a massively important contribution that he's made to this discussion, in my opinion. Um, so for ESG standards, unfortunately or fortunately, there are no ESG standards. And this is part of the challenge. Now, there is a movement, and there was an announcement this week that um, the standard setting bodies, of which there are many with competing standards, are working together to align around one set of standards that would be akin to accounting standards, right? So when you say carbon emit, well, carbon has a standard, so I'll pick another one. Uh, frankly, I don't know what they're going to be, but let's say diversity. Um, you know, we're going to have some defined metrics that make it clear what that means. Water usage, resource extraction. There's a whole bunch of metrics that get gathered by different organizations in different ways. They're not consistently collected and they're not uniformly disclosed. So for an investor, it's very hard to actually analyze that when you don't have a solid footing underneath you. This is a different point than than the inclusion of the I and ESG, um, which I think is, is, a, is another separately powerful point. So that's a standards common across the board. So I mean, I, I haven't spoken to Mark about this specifically, but I would argue that there's a very unique window right now as these standards get set, um, and, and I should probably ask him about this, um, for Indigenous communities to get engaged in that conversation to ensure that they do reflect um, some of the, the particular in, uh, intelligence and perspectives that Indigenous communities can bring to these issues. Um, on a philosophical level, and this goes back a little bit to sort of some of those long-term points that we talked about, um, one of the strongest contributions, there's so many contributions that Indigenous um, knowledge should and can bring to our capital system. Um, and I think one of the most important is the concept of the seven generations. We've lost that completely. I mean, now we're lucky to get seven weeks. You know? So, um, you know, that's that's a broader philosophical point. Um, but Mark, but that, you know, we, we have lost that completely. The sense of stewardship, um, the sense that we owe things to the future. Um, that there are issues, that there are things in this world bigger than us, um, that is lost. And I, at the risk of kind of getting too philosophical, I think this is really what the environmental, you know, conflict or, or crisis puts in, in stark relief. And there's a lot of Indigenous knowledge that we have not listened to as settlers. Um, and I really think it's time that we do. Um, so, I, you know, that's a really broad and philosophical point. Um, with respect to consent, um, a lot of this really, I think, comes down to how companies operate um, in their specific communities as well. Um, so one of the really interesting examples that I have had, I was along the side, my, my colleagues ran this investment, is that we at OP Trust invested in a natural gas plant in Northern Alberta, the deal is called Cascade. It's a $1.5 billion facility, about 900 megawatt generation, natural gas. Um, Whenever we do large complex infrastructure investments like that, we always have many partners. Um, and so obviously the indigenous communities were critical to the success of this. And so we did invest alongside a coalition of six indigenous communities in that 
plant um, and work fair. And they're, you know, they're the people on the ground every day. We're not there. We're here in Toronto, right? <laughs> so they are critical to the success. And this has been, you know, has, has emerged as being a, a really good example of how, you know, traditional finance and Indigenous knowledge and communities can work together. Uh, interestingly, we also got hammered for it because it's a natural gas plant and people don't want us in any fossil fuels. <laughs> That's for our earlier conversation. Um, but it's actually a really important example of when you get your S and your I right in ESG, it can actually be very impactful. So um, across the board, there's no standards. ESG means many, many different things. Um, and we should all <laughs> we should all listen to the wisdom of people like Mark um, in our in our work and in our lives, because I think we have lots to learn and, and lots to reflect on as a society. And the seven generations principles for listeners, we have a, in another episode, we talk extensively about it with Tabitha Bull, who is the CEO of the Canadian Council of Aboriginal uh, Business. Uh, and uh, it's such an important uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, paradigm, I think, to think of when we're thinking around ESG issues and uh, long-term thinking, and really to, to the point about your previous employer, Allison, focusing capital in the long-term. Uh, I think uh, align the seven generation principle uh, aligns a lot with, uh, with that kind of uh, concept. Allison, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. You are such an interesting a person of such diverse uh, career experiences. I think it's come about in this interview. There's, I've interviewed probably around 40 people on this podcast, and I think you probably have had some of the most varied career experiences. I've interviewed some people with some pretty varied career, career experiences uh, to, to date. Uh, but I really enjoyed this conversation, which has ranged from very specific details about the kind of uh, nature of Canadian democracy and some of the challenges facing our, our democratic uh, order uh, to uh, ESG standards, to divesting from fossil fuels, uh, to the seven generation uh, principle, uh, to different uh, book recommendations, uh, to the importance of cross-sector leadership. Uh, a really, really in intriguing uh, conversation today, Allison. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, I really look forward to keeping in touch. Well, thank you, Scott, for having me. And also thank you so much to, to Latifa, who's behind the scenes and the rest of your team for including me. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our social and our email list. Subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at Venture4Canada, that is Venture, the number four, Canada, or email us at podcast at Venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Stewart, and until next time, stay safe, stay motivated, and stay grateful. A New Wave of Entrepreneurship is produced by Winita Lee Garcia and Latifa Farah. Editing and mixing also done by Latifa Farah. Erica Ormanston is our editorial assistant. Mark Wallach and Premium Beat own the copyright and publishing rights related to the song used in this podcast. The comments and opinions, recommendations, or suggestions expressed on the podcast by the guests are not liable to Venture for Canada and belong solely to each individual. Any information provided stated by our guests and our host is independent of Venture for Canada. A new wave of entrepreneurship is a Venture for Canada brand and all content is owned by Venture for Canada. If you'd like to use our content, please reach out to us at podcast at venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca. 